0: Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics Podcast. First off, thank you, however you got here, for stumbling upon us a new monthly supplement for your podcast listening schedule. My name is Josh Chambers, a medical student at the University of East Anglia. This podcast, selfishly, gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of backgrounds, drilling down to why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. In this episode, we're concentrating on global health and we have someone with a really interesting story to talk to Our guest in this episode is Dr. Abdul-Karim Azayas. In 2013, Karim was training to be a neurosurgeon when his residency was interrupted by war. He joined Save the Children in Northwest Syria where he led the health response until 2017 helping build the primary healthcare system and restarting routine vaccinations. He is now working towards his PhD in Health Systems in Conflict at King's College London. Karim, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: I've been doing some reading about you over the last um, couple of days and you're an incredibly interesting person. I think... Um, we'll start right at the beginning, if that's okay. Um, and you went to medical school in Aleppo in 2004. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Okay, so let's start from the very beginning, why I uh, why I choose medical career. So, um, you know, in the system in Syria, the education system, that after the high school, you have kind of... Um, to select based on, uh, to select your university based on the uh, marks or the grades or the final year in the high school. So in the final year of the high school, I was ranked as the, um, the second on the whole country. So um, oh. it was kind of uh, some pressure from my family and people around me that you should go for a medical school because uh, usually medicine in Syria is kind of on the top Level of uh, universities, the um, uh, uh, courses that you can choose from. So I went to. The, this was not the only reason, actually, but I, the reason was that I wanted to help people. So um, usually, I enjoy helping people, especially in like um, after like accidents or these sort of things. So um, I went uh, to the medical school in Aleppo, um, but unfortunately, the medical school itself was not very kind of um, exciting for me, I would say. And um, to be honest, I did not enjoy it that much. So when I um, finished the medical school, I thought I should go to do surgery because, uh, you know, surgery... It's very much exciting and you can help people. And I love being in, in theaters in, in mm-hmm. like, um, you know, to do operations. Yeah. So um, in 2009, I started kind of a surgical career. So I went to general surgery training and uh, then I went to a neurosurgery tra- training program, which in Syria, it's six years uh, training program. So um I've done this in Aleppo and uh, in 2012, because of the conflict, Aleppo city was split between government forces and oppositions. And as a medical doctor, I was trying to help people from, you know, regardless of uh, their political affiliation. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the governmental hospital where I was doing my medical training program, It was very difficult to, you know, to provide uh, your help regardless of political affiliations, because we've been pushed a little bit by, you know, security agencies and different um, uh, other agencies to sometimes to not treat uh, protesters properly. Right. And this was very annoying for me because, you know, the motivations for me behind choosing a medical career was to help people. So I was trying to move between between both sides of this city, between the governmental controlled ones and the opposition controlled ones. But at some point, it was not possible for me to continue like this. Mm. Because uh, both sides will, will, question, will question your presence at the other side. So sure. um, I had to decide where to go and i decided to go to serve people who are uh, uh, more needy and uh, you know especially in our post health areas there were only few doctors left serving large number of populations so in the eastern part of aleppo there were around like a million population or even more hmm. and we were only like uh, i would say less than 10 doctors right. especially surgeons yeah. trying yeah. to um, you know, provide surgical help to people who suffer the most because most airstrikes and, um, you know, conflicts, incidents were happening in that part of the city. Mm. But then again, I had, I changed my career path. And, and I would say in 2013, it was the point where I decided that I will change my career from surgery to more kind of public health stuff. Sure. And the reason, the reason behind this change was that I found um, there is more need to strengthen the health system in in Syria, especially in the conflict-affected areas, and to respond to the public health threats. Even much more than uh, um, the need for uh, surgery and uh, trauma services, because you know doctors in Syria were trained to provide clinical uh, medicine services, but they are, they were not trained to provide public health services, mm. and it was a weakness um, in the health system in general. So um, that's when I decided to, to, to shift to uh, to public health. So I don't know if you have questions about this period before I continue. Yeah,
0: yeah, sure. To... I, I think, yeah, that's a good idea. I, I wondered, you talked obviously about um, sort of training in, in surgery initially um, and then moving into public health. But what, what was it like when the conflict started? How did... The healthcare change. What was it like being a doctor? I mean, I, I've sort of read articles that you've you've written um, and and other other things suggesting, you know, in two thousand sixteen, there was eight hundred medical workers were killed in Syria. Um, so, you know, what what was it like working on the front line in field hospitals and um, knowing that perhaps you know there is a risk of you being there?
1: Yeah. Um, so you know the when the conflict started in. um in 2011, so it started with only demonstrations mm. and uh, peaceful demonstrations, and so, yeah, so uh, our our role as medical doctors was to to receive people who, who um, injured during demonstrations and uh, usually kind of uh, peaceful people, usually in 2011. So um, it was kind of straightforward uh, work for us because the casualties were kind of um, manageable at manageable scale but in 2012 when the when armed conflict started it was it was really a disaster because the health system is here was not prepared to um, to know to respond to massive scale uh conflict so uh, in, in example, in Aleppo, the surgical hospitals were, the public surgical hospitals were only three major hospitals, <coughs> and I was working in one of these hospitals. And in, in July 2012, we were flooded by, like, unprecedented number of injuries. You know, before the conflict, it was only rarely to receive, like, kind of um, shots in the head or, you know... these sort of uh, injuries but starting from july 2012 it was on daily basis we receive i would say tens or even hundreds of uh, traumas that are related to you know um, airstrikes shots and clashes and as a neurosurgeon i i must be in the er or in the icu or in the theater at the same time Mm. but the problem you know, when when the opposition forces they entered the city, there was kind of um, uh, some road closures, I would say. So doctors, they who live outside of the city, they were not able to to come to the hospital. And we ended up be uh, doctors who were in the hospital, we ended up like covering shifts for all other doctors. Sure. So and in, in July and August 2012 I had to stay in the hospital for 27 days a month and 27 days means 24hour shifts for 27 days which is sure. something yeah. impossible yeah you know and, and in, in the in the first week i I was kind of okay trying to to provide the best that i can but then next week it really collapsed. So I was not able to provide the same quality of service that I would normally provide. Mm. And um, after a month of uh, serving, like at least doing at least three, four surgeon surgeries a day, and with a lot of you know ER and ICU work, um, after this month, I personally I had two disc herniations in my lower back, and I really collapsed. So I, yeah, I was yeah. not able to do anymore. Sure. But you know when I shifted to field hospital shift hospitals the the situation was was much worse because the problem was not only you know being overloaded by a lot of patients and injuries but the problem was safety because we were not able to um to work in 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 a safe place so i was responsible to um uh, to do surgeries in filled hospitals in a basement under a mosque and even this mosque was hit many times and we had to shift locations uh, many times. So we had to cope first with um, trying to be on the move and in the same time uh, to cope with the with uh, limited number of resources, with limited resources, mainly uh, surgical instruments and equipment. Sometimes I had to do, you know, neurosurgeries uh, using uh, instruments for general surgery, which is which is really impossible in, yeah, yeah. in normal situations, but we had to cope with this. Sometimes, you know, I, I had to do um, uh, orthopedic surgeries even without without general anesthesia. Imagine if you would do uh, external fixing for like um, uh, for legs without without general anesthesia. It was really impossible. So. You know, these sort of um, conditions that we had to cope with, considering the limited resources and the dangerous and risky uh, environment around us.
0: So, I mean, d- despite obviously a great need for, for surgeons and neurosurgeons and field hospitals there, you obviously recognise the need for a public health response as well. Um, so, yeah, could you tell us a bit more about how your role changed and how you saw medicine, the role of medicine changing in Syria at that time?
1: Absolutely. So um, I remember the minute I I kind of uh, had this spark in, in, in my mind to shift to public health. This was in, in 2013, I think in October 2013, uh, when a friend of mine, uh, he is a doctor, he called me. And explaining a case that he's, he's received, a four years old boy with uh, with unexplained paralysis, and um, he thought that it might be polio. But in the medical school, we have never seen any polio because yeah, polio, course, yeah. you know, in in Syria was eradicated, I think in ninety or something. Yeah. So we've never seen a case. So it was really difficult to diagnose mm-hmm. polio but we we've been hearing that because of the um, low percent low coverage of vaccination and because you know of the other conditions related to sanitation and crowded camps that you know measles and polio might come back again so uh, when my friend called me and he was explaining the um, the symptoms i was trying to you know, to, to search the some references and yes, it is polio. So both of us, we were not, you know, uh, able to do anything for, for this for this kid because, uh, you know, polio is untreatable. So And th- there are no kind of specialized centers to deal with these cases. So we try to refer the, the, um, the kid to, to uh, Turkey, but we identify that, you know, if it's really polio, then what we're going to do? If it's untreatable, then we should focus on prevention. Preventions mean vaccination. Vaccination, in in light of the collapsed health health system, mm-hmm. it's kind of an impossible thing to do. So um, I tried to contact with some people and some local uh, doctors in in the region, and all of us we identify the need of like uh, resuming vaccination after there was the withdrawal from of the Ministry of Health, the Damascus Ministry of Health, and with support from some local NGOs and international NGOs. We were able to do some vaccination activities, low-scale ones, before the polio outbreak was announced in October 2013. So when the polio outbreak was announced, all international organizations, including WHO and UNICEF, they came on board. And at that time, I was working with, I started to work with Save the Children. Mm-hmm. And Save the Children, they had very much focus on vaccination in, in conflict-affected areas and preventions in primary health care in general. So um, I try to lead the Save the Children response for polio in coordination with WHO and UNICEF and all other actors. And uh, in in January 2014, we were able to start the first massive mass vaccination campaign to vaccinate each single child door to door in the conflict affected areas. And the the polio vaccination campaign really changed my uh, thinking, the way I think about public health interventions because the campaign in less than a year was able to eradicate the polio again from Syria after in 2014, in 2013 starting, probably 2013, there were around 36 confirmed cases of polio. In 2014, thanks to the campaign, there were only one or two confirmed cases, and in 2015, Polio was um, almost eradicated, and there was another outbreak in in 2017. I think in the eastern um, uh, provinces, mm. in ISIS-controlled areas, but not in the opposition-controlled areas where the vaccination uh, was was taking place. So these sort of interventions changed my mind uh, about the the way that health and inter- the public health interventions can help and can strengthen the health system and can prevent uh, threats that uh, could be even impossible to to, to, um, to tackle when it happened.
0: Mm. And it's probably quite easy to get swept up in, in, in the traumatic injuries in these conflict zones. But of course, people still get ordinary things. They still get diabetes. There is still antimicrobial resistance. There's still a need for tertiary care centres to treat cancers. Was this a key objective within your time uh, in Syria? Uh,
1: absolutely, as uh, as you explained, like uh, working as a surgeon in field hospital, uh, yes, you might be able to help one patient uh, or like number of patients that you treat every day, but then the minute you you know try to refer a patient to another level of care, you identify that if there is no strong health system backing mm-hmm. you, then you will. Would- not be able to, to do your job properly. So um, say, for example, when we receive cancer cases, there was no one single cancer treatment center in the whole of Boston controlled areas in Syria or kind of um, like diseases like thalassemia or any other mm. conditions or yeah. TB or especially, you know, AMR with um, for TB cases is yeah. kind of like a nightmare that you would not be able to deal with unless you have a very strong health system mm. backing you. So these sort of challenges pushed us to think about um, like kind of comprehensive solutions that require strengthening the health system. Hmm. Without strengthening the health system and trying to fill the gaps in each level of the care, starting with primary health care, secondary care, tertiary, and (coughs) specialized care and specialized centers, you would not be able to to help um, these communities. So yes, part part of my focus was to try to uh, strengthen the health system Considering the limited resources, which is really like a very difficult, you know, thing to do in conflict affected areas where you have limited resources, which is some most of the times go to trauma because, you know, donors and um, organizations, most of the time they see only, you know, the, uh, the trauma problem, mm-hmm. while all other problems, the long term ones, including, you know, the communicable diseases, the interruption. Of uh, non-communicable diseases treatment, the you know spe- the lack of specialized services. All these problems are kind of rarely recognized by uh, international organizations and um, other actors. And even if they do recognize these problems, international organizations tend to focus on the problems that they can deal with more easily. And that's why yeah, that's why most international organizations they focus on trauma and they fo- they they located themselves next to the turkish border where they have more access mm. than other places
0: actually that leads me on to another question i was going to ask um about the the ethical challenges of humanitarian responses um it's you know you, you hear of charity sort of putting in in money like you say that perhaps if put into other areas like communicable uh, diseases vaccinations could save a lot more lives so What have you seen that has been perhaps, I don't know, unethical in a humanitarian response? And how can how can we change this in future crises?
1: You know, the problem that there is no uh, ethical framework to deal with health interventions in conflict affected areas and it's quite easy in general, because uh, people expect from international organizations working in, in close to front lines to do whatever they can do, because, you know, it's not an ideal situation. So we cannot ask them to do more than they can do. But the and uh, more, most ethical um, considerations focus on the way these international organizations deal or treat beneficiaries or uh, patients. They, they do not focus on the way they allocate resources, which is which is really a problem, because as as you said, if I invested in like a certain type of services and I put all my resources in this service, while I can do uh, like much larger impact, if I invested these resources in either a different place or a different type of service then I think it is unethical to put all my resources in one place mm. without without thinking of where I best where I invest my resources. And I think part of the solution could be to involve more kind of local actors in the planning. Because yes, we need international experts to, you know, to plan and design, but in the same time we need kind of a, a equal partnerships between international and local actors to design health services and then allocate health resources properly to to best invest the limited resources mm.
0: and this seems to link to the topic that you're that you're currently researching in your phd um, which is the, the bottom-up approach to healthcare provision um could you tell us a bit more about that
1: absolutely so you know considering all these challenges and um uh, the the throughout the experience that I had in in the responding to the Syrian conflict, I identified that there are a lot of gaps in in our knowledge about health interventions in conflict affected areas, especially when it comes to health systems approach mm-hmm. to to health interventions in conflict affected areas. So that's why I said, okay, yes, I've got some practical experience in the field, but I need to have some academic uh, experience as well to try first to um, uh, enrich my knowledge about these interventions but in the same time to try to fill gaps in in the in, in knowledge in general so i've done my master in epidemiology at london school of hygiene tropical medicine in 2016 and 2017 and i, I cho- i've chosen the the uh, epidemiology course because uh, it's kind of a technical skill that allow you to understand the distribution of diseases and how to respond to tackle these diseases on community level, not not on patients level. But after the epidemiology course, um, I identified the need to, um, to understand uh, more the uh, health security threats. So I've done a fellowship last year and with Chatham House with the Global Health Security Unit at Chatham House. Um, I was focusing on protection of health care and AMR, NCDs and other issues. Mm-hmm. And that led me to my PhD now at King's College London, which um, I try to to like, kind of summarize all these um, issues in, uh, um, in my PhD thesis, which is trying to Um, look at how health system could respond to different health threats in conflict-affected areas (coughs) and how health interventions should aim to strengthen health system in conflict-affected areas. Mm So I'm I'm trying in my PhD, I'm trying to provide an example of a hybrid health system that was in the opposition-controlled areas in Syria that tried to make a balance between different types of uh, health needs and investing the different sources um, that were available, Mm -hmm. the different resources that were available. So, um, and I will try to compare this to other contexts, including mainly around the Middle East, like including Libya or Yemen or even Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a bit of kind of post-conflict slash uh, ongoing conflict while all other um, areas, Syria, Yemen, and Libya, they are kind of prolonged and chronic conflicts. And the reason I'm interested in this uh, health system approach is that in in concurrent conflicts, uh, we deal usually with chronic conflicts Mm. and um, prolonged conflicts. So there is no way that we can use only kind of acute health interventions that were designed to respond to maybe um, acute health needs for several months or maybe one, two years. We cannot use the same interventions for conflicts, like the Syrian conflict that were going on for more than eight, nine years. So we think that the only solution is to have a health system approach to transform the type of health interventions we provide to aim to strengthen health systems and to have more sustainability uh, after the acute phase of conflict uh, ends.
0: Mm. Medical students and junior doctors are quite often interested in humanitarian responses, MSF society and and things like that. What advice would you give to people interested in pursuing a career in global health? What sort of experience is required?
1: Um, I think it's good it's good to have practical experience, definitely. So I encourage them, yes, to to work with international organizations like MSF, Save the Children, Um, Oxfam, IMC, and um, ICRC. But um, maybe it would be good to have some internships first as junior doctors mm. to have some internships before going or kind of um, in in on missions. Uh, it's good to have some like short internships, one three months, to understand how these charities work, because I would say different charities they work in different ways, and depends on what you would like to pursue in the future in kind terms of career path or uh, even your kind of personal motivations. Uh, I think the type of charity you choose would would differ. So uh, if uh, if you are Very much interested in kind of uh, trauma services or care in front lines, then yes, definitely it's MSF because MSF they they are known to be kind of first responders in front lines. But if you are interested in more kind of public health approach and health approach, then maybe MSF would not be the right place for you to go. So, yes, maybe an internship for one, three months would help you to identify how these charities work and how your personal goals fit their way of working.
0: I'm going to ask you one final question, if that's OK, uh, perhaps a, a more personal one. I wondered if there was a patient you have seen or, or an experience you've had in your time working uh, in, in these areas that has sort of changed your outlook on medicine or, or you've talked, of, of course, of public health, but has, you know, I don't know, stuck in your mind uh, more than any other.
1: Yeah, I, like I remember a lot of, you know, uh, moments where uh, they, they left, you know, a lot of impacts in, in, in the way I think and I approach <coughs> health interventions in, in these areas. So one moment when I was working in a governmental hospital in, in Aleppo um, and I was working as a resident neurosurgeon. So um, I received uh, twins um, around the, around like 13th or 14th years old, and one of them uh, died, had died already. and uh, because of airstrikes strikes, while the, the family were trying to save the, the, the brother. So they were begging that they, if we can help, and The problem because we were overloaded uh, the time of surgery that we need to provide to this um, to this boy require an ICU uh, care afterwards and we did not have any uh, Any places any in, in the ICU unit at that at that time So I tried to refer them but I knew that if I referred this boy They will never be able to, to find any other place in in the whole city so um, I've taken the decision that I would take this boy and I will do the surgery, and then maybe we will do manual ventilation, you know, because we we don't have places in the ICU, so we will do manual ventilation maybe for the whole night unless um, that place would be available in the ICU. So we've done the operation. It was the um, epidural bleeding, and you know the usual epidural bleeding after surgery would uh, would recover in a few days. So uh, I've done the operations, and then uh, we spent the whole night, me and two other nurses, try, uh, doing manual ventilation yeah. for, this, for this boy, which is really, you know, it's very hard to, yeah. you know, maintain, you know, the um, the auto and the CO2 levels sure. using only manual ventilation. But we were successful until the morning, a place where it became available in the ICU. And we've put this boy, and the boy recovered in two three days, and then he was discharged a few days later. And a month later, I think a month or two months later, uh, the, uh, they visited the hospital again. And I was really busy doing uh, other things in the outpatient clinic. And he was trying to, you know, remind me with himself, like I'm I'm Ahmed, the, the boy that you've done a surgery to him. And when I've seen him, like he was kind of a normal boy after one, two months, it was, you know... Uh, you cannot imagine how how you can feel mm. when yes you saved the life of this boy and this boy might be like you know you, you never know yeah. what he will be in the future he will be kind of a rebuilder of this country hopefully yeah. so yeah. these kind of moments would encourage you to do whatever you can to help more people but and then to forget all other challenges and you know uh, your fatigue and uh, other things you might face in in
0: this career. Wow. Dr. Karim Exaez, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and what an amazing story there at the end as well. It's been fascinating hearing about your your work, your humanitarian work within Syria and also your work with Save the Children, but, but now more recently, your research interests with King's College London. I wish you all the best in your PhD and thank you so much again for coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much for the invitation and uh, yeah, good luck.
0: Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing through your podcast provider. You can also follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook we'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you would like to hear from next thank you to the producers of this episode of the podcast alice appleton abby carter and dr lewis